research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view. This is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, I'm Peter Schweitzer, and this is The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and abuse of power in America. And I'm joined, as always, uh, with Eric Eggers. Eric, how are you today? Well, I'm quite fatigued based on our relentless efforts, right? So, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's a lot to do. But here we go. You just got to toughen up, my friend. Um, yeah. Well, Eric, let me ask you this. Are you excited about what's going on in Washington? Uh, I guess it depends on the context, right? There's some free agent signings with the Wizards joining other teams. Do you mean with the you know, the Washington football team, their pursuit of a new name? Yeah, or- I was talking about something a little bit more serious, which is actually the future course of our country. Because the reason I ask you, Eric, is because a lot of people aren't that excited about what's going on in Washington. Left, right, and center, people seem displeased. They seem frustrated. But there is one group that is very excited about what's happening in Washington today, and that is the influence industry. They're seeing this massive surge in lobbying in Washington, and the influence industry is jubilant. Um, the Hill newspaper just recently reported, quote, Democrats' trillion-dollar spending plans and proposals to crack down on powerful industries have produced a lobbying boom in Washington. Many of the top K Street firms brought in record revenues in the second quarter of 2021 as clients hired well-connected lobbyists to influence the infrastructure infrastructure package and other key Biden administration priorities. So Eric, what do you think about what's going in Washington and how well are these people really doing? Yeah, one of the uh, most fun things I think we talk about is the idea of Washington being just a wash in wealth, right? And I think to the point in the new Biden administration, not that there wasn't lobbying that occurred under a Trump administration, but it's a new cast of characters with new connections. And those new connected characters are thriving. Um, You know, some of these lobbying firms, it's unclear. We should play a game sometime. Is this a lobbying firm or like a new drug that's being pimped by a pharmacy (laughs) company, right? (laughs) Invariant. Okay, what do you think? Like drug or lobbying firm? Uh, I'm going to go with drug. No, it's a lobbying firm oh, actually, and it's man. and it's run by uh, your your favorite uh, you know former Democratic connected official Heather Podesta. So Democratic fundraiser, and they earned seven and a half million dollars in the second quarter. That's up fifty percent from the same period last year, right in 2020, when of course we had a different party in control of the White House. And that's Hyper- just one quarter, right? One quarter, yeah. seven and a half million dollars. Amazing. I mean, you know, those are Schweitzer numbers, right, as we like to call them. So (laughs) I wish. Yeah. So Tiber Creek Group, uh, previously named Peck, Madigan Jones, had six point two million dollars in second quarter revenue, which is up four point three million from the same period last year. And that's a, quote, bipartisan firm managed by a guy named Jonathan Jones, who has connections to Biden and was chief of staff to Democratic uh, Delaware Senator Tom Carper. uh, By the way, I used to go to a place called the Tiber Creek Pub on mm-hmm. Capitol Hill, where they had lo- yard-long beer uh, that you could drink. But we'll save that story for another time. 
Yeah, I love when we hear like, you know, t- Peter Schweitzer tells tales of yore from his time in Washington, D.C. That's why you still call the Hill a newspaper, by the way, just to be clear, in case you thought we were going to let that one go. So, uh, but yeah, but so it's not great time for everybody, right? We've spent some time and, and you and I, we've done some different reporting. And we have staff that's looked at uh, Brian Ballard. Ballard Partners is a firm that's touted its Trump connections. And because of its Trump connections, they're actually seeing their fortunes go the other way. They're not quite uh, thriving as some of these Biden connected firms are. They saw their revenue from six and a half million in the second quarter last year down to 4.8 million. So and this has been what's reported in the Hill. What do firms that had Trump connections that are now seeing drops in revenue do because of the new Biden administration? They hire people that are connected to the Biden administration, of course, and that's going to be their business model that will see an increase in the thing. And that's what's sort of crazy, right? Because, I mean, I knew you talk about the idea of lobbying being something like, why would you hire a lobbyist? Well, is this person an expert on a subject? Is this person an expert in an industry? Uh, well, based on these numbers, it seems like the biggest expertise you can have is the phone number of somebody who has an important job. And that's kind of what the industry is. And that's where I think maybe some people find it to be less than alluring from a conception standpoint, right? Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that strikes me about the example of Biden, uh, Ballard Partners, and you can talk about other lobbying firms is these guys all get involved in campaigns and they will tell you when they're running against an opponent, if that person is elected, uh, our way of life is going to go away. Our country is going to be destroyed. And then when they lose, what do they do? They hire the people that they just told you six months ago were going to destroy the country. They hire them and they become business partners. This is the way Washington, D.C. works. And uh, unfortunately, it continues to do so. I mean, not to be judgmental, because we definitely look for like when we hire at GAI, like, do you plan on destroying the country? It's one of the questions. <laughs> it's on the resume, on the, cor- uh, you know, yeah, career right. objectives. People at Handshake, like, are you sure you want to ask this question? We're like, yes, we do. So, uh, but it's interesting, these these connections to the, the Biden firm and like these firms that are doing better because of their connections. Maybe no example proves the point better than uh, your buddy Jeff Ricchetti, who has a lobbying firm that, according to this article, has flourished since his, bro- since his brother Steve Ricchetti was named as a senior counselor to President Biden. So this guy's firm uh, has been registered to lobby for a long time since going back to 2014, and they had nine or fewer clients and earned less than $300,000 in each quarter from 2014 to 2020, right? So like not exactly a high-profile, high-powered player on K Street. Well, since since his brother Steve got hired, uh, my man is killing it. So he's got $1.67 million in lobbying fees in the first half of this year, and that's more than quadruple what he got in the same period last year. Now, I, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and assume, Eric, for a second that this is not – because Jeff Reschetti just suddenly got so much better at his job, right? He was not doing well as a lobbyist. He was not very effective. Uh, it's just coincidental uh, that his fees have gone up now that his brother is the senior counselor in the White House. This is really actually excellent news. And this is instantly becomes one of my favorite podcasts because my brother's fairly successful and he likes to lord it over me, right? And he like, like you know, he paid for this, you know, wine trip we took in Napa and he's like, oh my gosh, I'm the best brother ever. And then I just want to introduce him to the Rashetti family, okay? <laughs> like, yeah, until you get on Steve Rashetti's level, you are nothing to me. <laughs> and make it work. But this illustrates, a, a, you know, an important uh, component of how the lobbying and influence industry works because we've seen this before. Uh, Podesta, as you mentioned, Heather Podesta, uh, just above, 
uh, who is the ex-wife of Tony Podesta. Tony Podesta, very successful DC lobbyist, whose business grew enormously when his brother John Podesta had what position? Senior counselor to President Obama. So this is like one of those terrible uh, Hollywood remakes uh, where we've seen it before and the same thing is happening and they are cashing in big time in the influence industry. So the question is, Eric, there are, there are lots of interesting examples here, but the question is, why is this exactly happening? Why is there this sudden surge and this increase in the amount of money that people are making in the lobbyist, in lobbying industry? And part of it, I think, is unique to the, to the Biden administration, but part of it is, is a sense, the, the, the deeper institutional problems. So, let me ask you this, Eric. What do you think happens when you've got these multi-trillion dollar bills uh, that have been introduced by the Biden administration? We had ones related to COVID. We've had one related to infrastructure. We've got green energy. We've got tax policy. What happens in the influence industry when those kinds of bills become predominant as they are today? Uh, they get passed along bipartisan basis and everyone's happy and generally agrees that, you know, that, the, that what happened was good policy and <laughs> beneficial to the majority of the citizens. Yeah, right? that's right. I mean, this is why GAI is on the cutting edge because we bring you information nobody else does. Um, right. The problem is, unfortunately, that's not what happens. What happens is these big bills are hunting grounds for lobbyists. And they're hunting grounds because if you think about it, when you've got a bill that is 2,700 pages long, uh, that a lot of legislators are supposed to vote on that they haven't even read, you know, been able to read, uh, what happens? It's really easy to hide stuff. And lobbyists love to hide stuff. It's a little bit like, uh, oh, I don't know, cockroaches, right? Cockroaches don't like to be seen. They don't like the sunlight. They don't like to be exposed. It's the same thing with a lot of these big bills. It's an opportunity for politicians with support from lobbyists who are helping to put them into office to introduce nice little nuggets buried in a big bill that nobody is paying attention to or hasn't had a chance to look at. Um, and and that's one of the reasons that um, I think we're seeing this uptick in lobbying because there's so many opportunities to make so much money or actually potentially lose money if you don't change a bill. That's why these big bills are a disaster. Lobbyists love them because they're confusing. They're hard to follow. They're hard to figure out what they mean. You can change a couple of words in a paragraph and it can have enormous implications. And lobbyists get paid huge sums of money to embed these things into these large, complicated bills. That's part of the reason why I think these lobbying firms are doing so well. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out, like lobbying is an industry. Obviously, they're going to spend the money. So I think it's important that members of Congress and whoever's making these decisions are informed, right? And they speak to actual subject matter experts. They have a level of awareness of, hey, okay, if you spend this money in this way, then this is going to happen. And, and I don't think like all lobbying is bad per se, right? But I think the point that we would make is, and we're actually seeing it here in Tallahassee where we live, there's an ongoing federal corruption trial involving a former city commissioner. And right now there's somebody who's accused of sort of racketeering and bribery. And one of the things that's come out as part of this trial is you see lots of decisions being made that impacted like where a hotel got built or who got hired for this job. And so what happens is the things that the decisions that get made and the actions that happen that impact the entire population, it's become quite clear those weren't made 
we didn't hire the best person for the job based on the merits, right? We didn't decide to put a hotel here because we thought, hey, this is going to be the best for the community. Like, it's best for the person that paid the money to the official. It's best for the people that spent the most money on lobbying. So I think it's like when you alter the outcome of a thing, you're maybe altering oftentimes in not a positive way the quality of life of American people, right? Because other people got paid for it. Absolutely. I mean, this is, uh, you know, when you see these kinds of uh, lobbying abuses take place, it's not a victimless crime. You know, right. we're not talking about some minor thing that's really not going to affect. It's going to transform and affect, uh, you know, people's jobs. I mean, if you look at uh, things in the in the green energy, the Green New uh, Deal uh, elements of a lot of the legislation Biden's coming out with, um there are people that stand to lose their job because their industry is not being favored. There are also very wealthy uh, institutions, financial firms and others that are hiring lobbyists to get things uh, uh, into that bill that's going to benefit their particular company. Uh, and that's what's so disastrous about it. I think you're right. Uh, the Constitution allows us to petition our government, which is, I think, what lobbying is. But the question is, has it gone too far? And I think there's so much evidence uh, that the lobbying business has gone too far uh, and has become much too powerful um, and too lucrative. And that's part of what we're seeing. I think the other problem that we have, though, Eric, is it's not just these big, um, complicated bills uh, that are a hunting ground for lobbyists that's pouring all this money in. You also have the fact that the lobbying industry is deep in the Biden administration's DNA. Now, I don't mean to just suggest that it's the Biden administration uh, is the only one that has this problem. In fact, uh, Eric, um, something very interesting President Trump did on his last day in office that I think highlights how deeply embedded uh, this is into our culture. Um, what happened on the last day of the Trump administration? Well, lots of things happened on the last day, but I think that are, that are relevant to this discussion is the order that the President Trump had signed at the beginning of his administration saying, hey, we're going to ban lobbying by anybody that leaves an agency and then goes to work in the lobbying field. You cannot lobby the agency that you just left from, right, for I think it was five years. And then so on the last day of the Trump administration, they revoked that ban, basically meaning anybody that left the Trump administration was then free to almost immediately begin lobbying those agencies that they just left. And you sort of wonder if it wasn't the people that were getting ready to be out of a job that were going into new jobs, uh, partly responsible for that action by President Trump, right? But so your your point is, hey, the lobbying is something that happens in every presidential administration. Every presidential administration, every Congress spends lots and lots of money. So there's lots and lots of opportunities for lobbying to occur. But what is it you think that's unique about the Biden administration then? Well, I think what's unique about the Biden administration in the, in the case of Trump, as you talked about, he had this great reform, a five-year ban on lobbying your own agency if you work in the Trump administration. Uh, I was hugely in favor of that. I was very disappointed when uh, President Trump uh, ended that on the last day. Um, but Trump didn't come. He was not a creature of Washington. He didn't come from uh, from the swamp or from American politics. Uh, Joe Biden does. I mean, I mean, he's been in uh, office for, for 40 years as a senator, vice president, and now president of the United States. And we have to keep that in mind that Hunter Biden, his son, who we've talked about before, I don't want to keep beating up on Hunter, but the facts are the facts. Hunter was actually a lobbyist while his dad was a senator. And what was his job? It was to, to find earmarks 
that could benefit companies in Delaware, uh, which is, of course, the state that his father represented. So the lobbying industry is very much part of um, the Biden family's DNA, but within the Biden administration as well, as we talked about, you have Steve Reschetti, which is a longtime aide. Uh, he's worked for Joe Biden for a long time. He was actually the managing uh, 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 director of the Biden Center at the University of Pennsylvania, who he's an aide before that. And as you've mentioned, uh, his brother uh, is a longtime fixture in Washington as a lobbyist, and uh, Steve Reschetti's children uh, now have also been brought into the uh, Biden administration. Um, his son works at the Treasury Department, and his daughter Shannon works in the uh, in the White House itself. Uh, and then on top of that, Eric, we also have other Biden appointees that were also lobbyists or have aides uh, that are lobbying them. Uh, you have Martha Fudge. Uh, great political name, by the way, Fudge. But Martha Fudge, Marsha Fudge, who's the HUD secretary, um, her former legislative director left when she got that appointment. She was a member of Congress, of course. And what is she now doing? She is now a lobbyist and she's going to lobby HUD where her former boss is the secretary. That, that's a pretty great gig, isn't it? She's now keenly interested in housing and urban development related issues. That, yes. That's exactly right. And you've got Interior Secretary Deb uh, Halland, uh, her former uh, legislative aide, um, left when she got appointed uh, the Interior Secretary. She's now going to be a lobbyist. You've got Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack. His former chief of staff is now a lobbyist. You've got the HHS Secretary Becerra, whose former aide Deborah Dixon is now a lobbyist. Uh, she was actually asked, Eric, um, whether she was going to lobby him on issues. And she gave the great D.C. non-answer answer, which was, quote, I have a great relationship with my former boss, and I look <laughs> forward to continuing to work with him. So I think the answer is yes. She's going to lobby her former boss. I uh, this is the language like that. Like- What's that? I was going to say, like, yeah, our relationship transcends typical <laughs> communication patterns. I don't want to limit anything. It sounds like me, my freshman year in college, you know, like, hey, let's just kind of see what happens. Uh, you know, let, let's see let, where this know, is going to go. Right. Let's just see where this is going to go. Yeah, it's true. Right. And by the way, I think it's just important to point out, you know, you hear phrases like the swamp. Right. Which you've used earlier. You hear phrases like deep state, which obviously have different connotations for different people. But like this is what those things mean. Right. This is these are the people that continue to list live in this ecosystem a phrase you use that i think is excellent is the permanent political class like this is that right these are the people that live and make money off of the washington dc process both by working in the government when their party's in charge and then in the lobbying field where their party's not and this is how things get done and so people when they get frustrated like well how come even though we elected a new party we're not really seeing any major changes in terms of outcomes how come we're not spending less money right how come we're not seeing earmarks go down or anything it's because it's the same people in charge they just might have different positions that's right and 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 to think of this as a uh, commercial opportunity. You know, we have uh, presidential elections. We have two candidates that say if the other guy gets elected, uh, it's going to be end of the world. Everything's going to fall apart. Uh, the other guy does get elected. But what does the other opposition do? They figure out ways in which they can get access to the new administration that is supposed to destroy America uh, so they can actually cash in and influence legislation. 
So, Eric, we're talking about the reasons. Why is there this huge upsurge in lobbying under Biden? The first uh, point that we talked about is how complex these massive bills are. He wants to spend all this money. That's a big hunting ground. We talked, second of all, about the cultural uh, DNA of the Biden administration. It's it's, it's part of uh, the Biden family uh, uh, commercial opportunities. Uh, So many people that are part of this revolving door. But the third one is, I think— also important, and that is the fact that earmarks are back. Earmarks are back in a big way. This is something that has broad bipartisan support. Uh, Eric, why don't you tell us a little bit what is an earmark, um, and and why do you, why we think people want this in Washington want this back? Yeah, earmarks are just specially designated pieces of legislation that say we will spend X number of dollars on this museum in Congressman Johnson's district, right? We will spend $3 million on a water slide here, right? Because somebody asked for it. And so these are these carve outs, these things that are not just generally, but like, no, we are specifically earmarking this money for this thing that's going to be in this special area because we're doing somebody a favor, right? And it's basically how Washington gets things done. That's right. Uh, earmarks were banned uh, for a while. Um, and the reason they were banned is because uh, this is going to be a shock to a lot of people. It was actually abused. There were people that were <laughs> that were that were um, submitting earmarks that actually benefited themselves. They benefited their families. They benefited their donors. It wasn't just a, an innocent bike path that they wanted put somewhere so more people could get exercise. It was actually abused, so it was banned. Now they've brought it back, and their explanation is that this is supposed to, and I love this DC term. It's supposed to quote lubricate the legislative <laughs> process lubricate the legislative process, which, of course, the greasy connotation there, I think, fits. Um, and the idea here is if, you, if you've if you got a Senate like we have that's 50-50 and you're having a hard time getting people on board for certain pieces of legislation because there's an even divide, why don't we add some sweeteners in there? So if there's a senator that's sitting on the fence who's going to vote in favor, uh, is going to vote against something but might vote in favor of it, we can entice him to do so by giving him earmarks for his state uh, that he wants done. Um, it is a lubricant, but I think it's a terrible lubricant because it's, again, spending taxpayer money for the political benefit of the political class. And all it's going to do is lead to greater abuse. And the problem is lobbyists love earmarks because you can add an earmark. You can add a bike path to an agriculture department bill. You can add a bike path or a, uh, you know, some other set aside building a museum or, you know, building a roadway. You can add that to the department of defense bill. Um, there, there really aren't a lot of limits on what you can do with earmarks. Lobbyists love it because they get paid to place and embed these earmarks into legislation. They're like these little hidden landmines that only blow up afterwards when people realize, oh my gosh, look what was in this bill. Right. Only after things get passed, do people realize like, oh my gosh, there's a bridge to literally nowhere in this bill because it was an earmark for somebody, right? In Tallahassee, we got famous for having a turtle tunnel. Uh, That was one of those shovel-ready projects back on the stimulus uh, bill from the Biden administration, or excuse me, the Obama administration. So no, and it's just another example of earmarks are how things that don't benefit people, right? happen and we spend we spend taxpayer dollars on projects that don't really benefit tax taxpayers because lobbyists get them in there that's exactly right and so these are the three main reasons i think that lobbying is exploding uh, in the biden administration 
As we pointed out at the beginning, this is not an opinion. It's a simple fact. The numbers demonstrate that the lobbying industry is booming in Washington, D.C. Um, but I think there are other things that we need to watch for uh, as we're tracking the influence game in Washington, D.C. Uh, the first one is sort of the balance in lobbying between what's called offensive and defensive lobbying. Now, uh, Eric, I know you love sports. You love college basketball. You love college football. Do you tend to like good defense or good offense? offense or both? I mean, it depends on which sport we're watching. And by the way, speaking of sports, you mentioned that, you know, Hunter Biden was a lobbyist before he became a natural gas executive. And then before he became now he's an artist, right? I mean, my man is literally like the Bo Jackson of people in Washington, D.C. Multi-sports star, right? Can literally get anything done. Danny Ainge, who played professionally both as a baseball player and a basketball player, is jealous of Hunter Biden's versatility, right? So what a specimen. I just want to acknowledge that. No, but what I'm confused because I do know sports and I understand offense versus defense in sports. What do you mean by offense or defense versus lobbying? Well, it, it, there, there are a couple of things that lobbyists do. One is defensive lobbying. What does that mean? If uh, somebody introduces a bill that says we're going to uh, create this new tax on, let's say, the high-tech industry or this new regulation on the high-tech industry, uh, the high-tech industry is going to hire lobbyists to prevent that bill from passing. In other words, they're basically saying uh, we're going to try to prevent the status quo from changing. We like the way things are. Generally, defensive lobbying is more keeping government at bay. Um, and, and that is fairly common in Washington, D.C. But what's becoming more common is what's called offensive lobbying. Now, all lobbying, some people would say, is, is offensive. I don't think that's quite true. But offensive lobbying specifically refers to where you hire a lobbyist to say, you know what, we want you as a lobbyist to go out and to get us government money to get us an earmark or to get us a government program that's going to subsidize our industry. Um, that is far more ambitious and that can be hugely lucrative for companies. And we're seeing an upswing of that uh, because, again, in the Biden administration, there's this emphasis on greater government uh, activism, government involvement, a more robust government that's involved in more aspects of our life. Lobbyists love that because offensive lobbying tends to pay more than defensive lobbying because because you're getting these this sort of huge upside um, from the federal government and from your lobbying dollars. Yeah, you talked about defensive lobbying in your book, Extortion, right? Like the idea is like, hey, we will do this unless you can spend some money, contribute to some campaigns, right? It's like there's more of a present threat that you're warding against. That's right. That's right. Uh, you know, politicians use uh, defensive lobbying to their advantage. They basically threaten pieces of legislation that uh, industries don't want. And they're basically trying to extort money uh, from uh, corporations and industries to sort of keep them away. It's like the old protection racket. You remember in the uh, – in, in, in the great movies where they kind of show up and say, oh, it'd be terrible if a fire occurred here in your uh, in your diner um, and you end up paying protection money. That's kind of what happens in Washington, D.C. And that shows up most often when it comes to defensive lobbying, offensive lobbying uh, right now. Probably the best example would be the Green New Deal, um, because they are talking about spending large, large, large sums of money, hundreds of billions of dollars. And you want to get a piece of that pie. Uh, that's why it's called uh, offensive lobbying. Um, the other thing I think that we have to keep in mind and watch for is, you know, that that the surge in lobbying, I think, lays bare really what the lobbying industry is primarily about. Now, 
Again, I think there are legitimate uh, roles for lobbying. I think it's a constitutional right, um, although I don't think that extends necessarily to, say, foreign entities. Um, but the lobbying game, what they'll often tell you, those who defend the industry, is that it's really about expertise, right? That that um, you hire a lobbyist because they had a former government job. They're an expert in industry or a piece of legislation or uh, a regulatory regime as it relates to a certain industry. So you're really hiring expertise when you're hiring lobbying lobbyists. Um, the, the reality is that there's been a lot of academic research on this. It's actually more who you know than what you know uh, when it comes to lobbyists. It's, it's who your hookup is. If you have a good relationship with the decision maker in government, the person that's voting or the regulator, that's going to matter a lot more than any sort of expertise uh, that you're going to bring to the table. Well, and that's why you see these things pop up, right? Like there's people that used to work here, get hired by these lobbying firms. And then they also will just hire and start up their own consulting firms. And then they get contracts that way, right? I mean, we've seen that with Pine Island Capital was, I think, a famous one. Uh, Tony Podesta now is the consultant to Huawei, um, right? So you see these names of people that used to be a player, used to have a job in the administration, and now they have their own companies. And so like, they're not lobbyists per se, but it's still, to your point, it's just taking advantage of the access and relationships that they have. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's the other thing we really have to watch for in the midst of this is, you know, uh, first, the offensive and defensive lobbying that's going on. It's almost like an arms race. The second thing is that lobbying is really about who you know. But the third thing is is you, you hit the nail on the head, which is lobbying is the, is the most uh, accessible concept that people people have of the influence industry in DC. And lobbying is a very specific, narrowly defined activity where you are specifically pushing for a piece of legislation or a, or a piece of legislative change. That said, there's all kinds of other elements. They, they kind of operate in a gray area. You have consultants, for example. You can be a, quote, government affairs consultant um, rather than a lobbyist. And that limits the amount of time you can lo lobby or you can try to influence something on uh, somebody on a piece of legislation. Or you can advise behind the scenes. So you've got Tony Podesta, the, the brother of John Podesta. Uh, Tony Podesta certainly has great relationships now in the Biden administration. He's not a lobbyist for Washington. Huawei, the, uh, the, the Chinese tech company, but he is a quote unquote consultant. Um, and that I think is problematic. The other thing is you have the rise of these uh, private consultancies. Um, these are uh, for-profit private equity firms that are making investments um, or that want something from the government that's related to their business model. Uh, Tony Blinken, the current Secretary of State, uh, was one of the founders of one of these firms called West Exec. West Exec is the avenue, one of the avenue streets next to the White House. That's why they gave it the name. Uh, and West Exec has large numbers of corporate clients. And you know, Tony Blinken, when he started West Exec, he was not a lobbyist. He didn't have to register as a lobbyist, but that private consultancy was very much part of the influence industry. And look, Tony Blinken did the right thing. He had to do it. He divested from West Exec. He left West Exec. But you have to ask the question, when he leads, leaves Foggy Bottom as Secretary of State, um, is he going to go back to West Exec? Um, certainly, his friends and business partners are still there doing their uh, game and and uh, doing their business. 
Um, so it's, it's the revolving door is not just about lobbyists. It's about the influence industry. It includes government affair consultants. It also improve, involves these private consultancies uh, that operate. So th- that would be the third thing I would ask people to watch as we see the surge in lobbying is don't just look at lobbyists. Look at the broader influence industry that's taking place. And that's what's the last one you mentioned, these private consultancies like in Pine Island's listed kind of under West Exec, right? And Pine Island also had, uh, you know, current defense secretary Lloyd Austin was mentioned as an advisor, right? And so, I mean, they just, and they touted it before he became secretary of defense as like, look, here's who we are. Here's the kind of people on our team. We plan on having high level access in the defense space specifically to the Biden administration. And so it's people can come and invest in a company that they then expect to have not inside information, but close to it, right? Exactly. And and when you look at the West Exec website, they've changed it a little bit now that they've got uh, people associated with the firm in the Biden administration. But they tout the fact that they have access and that they have influence with decision makers. That's very much part of uh, the industry and, and, and how it operates. The other problem is that that at least when you are a lobbyist, if you're going to obey the law, and I think you know, most of them tend to do that. You actually have to register. You have to disclose who's paying you, how much, and what you're lobbying for. If you are a government affairs consultant, like Tony Podesta is with Huawei, and there are a bunch of them out there in Washington, D.C., not just Tony Podesta, you don't have to disclose any of that. So we're not going to learn how much Tony Podesta is being paid by that company. Uh, We're also not going to know how big the uh, contracts are that West Exec and these other consultancies are getting because they don't have to register the way that lobbyists do. That's why this is, I think, one of the nefarious things that we have to watch because you don't have the same level of disclosure as you do with the lobbying industry. Yeah, I think that's the key takeaway, right? That's why you start up a consultancy. That's why you do something that's not as an official lobbyist is less disclosure, which conceptually means back to your cockroach analogy, right? Like less sunshine. Sunshine's the best disinfectant, less regulation, less oversight with some of these kind of private areas. That's exactly right. Um, And uh, ultimately, the way that this is going to be dealt with is people have to be vigilant, people have to pay attention, and they have to expose it. And we have to recognize that these policy debates that are taking place in Washington, D.C., they're not all about what is the best policy, what which one reflects my values. There are huge industries behind them uh, that are trying to shape that legislation because it's going to help their bottom line and make them a lot of money. And they're willing to pay a lot of people in Washington, D.C. with access to do it. So it takes vigilance, right? It takes oversight. That's one of the reasons why we do this podcast is we want to continue to stay focused and pay attention to the things that maybe slip through the cracks of traditional media, give you information that you're not going to see anywhere else. And so to the point, we want to continue to connect the dots on the lobbying efforts and the people involved in the process and these major bills. So I think next week, right, we're going to do something on the infrastructure bill, a lot of debate uh, on that happening right now, a lot of money potentially being spent and a lot of kind of weird provisions that are potentially included. So as a little bit of a tease for next week. Next week, we plan on doing something on the infrastructure bill and the lobbying and the the people involved in making that process happen. That's exactly right. Uh, We look forward to joining you next week to discuss that very issue. Uh, Until then, please go to thedrilldown.com. You can uh, listen to this podcast and others, and you can also read the many stories that we are putting up exposing cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power in Washington, D.C. This is Peter Schweitzer and Eric Eggers. Thanks for joining us. 